Welcome to episode 119 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate COVID bunkers in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Yeah. Spooky edition. Yes. <laughs> are y'all feeling the Halloween spirit this year? Kind of. Yeah. Kind of a little bit. <laughs> I bought a, um, a mini pumpkin. <laughs> oh, a mini pumpkin. Yeah, those like 99 cent pumpkins and like a tiny cinnamon broom. <laughs> so yeah, I'm ready. A bunch of coworkers brought in candy last week. So been eating a lot of candy. And it helps <laughs> me feel like I'm in the Halloween spirit. Awesome. And, and start watching you know, nothing but horror movies in the month of October as I do. I've been doing that as well. Mostly going through old DVDs I've purchased since last year that I haven't watched that are like horror related. Like now's the time to clear them out. Mm-hmm. What have you been watching, James? I've been watching a lot, but there's one film in particular that I really wanted to talk about. So I watched this Netflix true crime documentary called American Murderer, The Family Next Door. Have you seen this on Netflix? It's about yeah. the Chris Watts case. Yeah, I watched it uh, last weekend. I don't know if you felt as strongly about this as I did, but I was actually blown away. And I think this might be the future of true crime documentaries. Like, it felt really cutting edge. Well, I think it also goes with the case because his wife that he killed, she, like, um, sold one of those, like, pyramid scheme thingies. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know. It's like a... Multi-level marketing. Yeah, one of those things. So, like, their entire life was on, like, Facebook Live. Like, every moment was, like, on Facebook Live. So, I think, like, that helped that film kind of get... I mean, you felt like you knew these people and you were, like, in their house. Well, and, okay, so the problem I usually have, and I am addicted to these kind of shows, any sort of dateline mystery or, you know, Mm -hmm. first 48, any sort of true crime thing, I eat it up. And those shows usually make me feel kind of icky because it's never really about the person who got murdered. It's not about the victim. It's just like, how did they get killed? And how did the killer get caught? Let's get into the mind of the killer. And yeah. Figure and out why it's they always did it. about the killer and not about the actual victim. And in this film, I will say, it, I still don't know if it was with good intentions. I know the family signed off on it, but if, felt very exploitative in a certain way, but, you know, just showing all the text messages, the Facebook live Mm -hmm. videos, all this like real footage of this family. And you actually feel like you got a sense of the victims. And I think with so much social media and everything that's out nowadays, I really do see this as like the future of the true crime genre. Instead of doing, you know, these dramatizations we're going we're gonna to have footage of real stuff because everyone records everything. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, like, you're right. In the future, like that's what it's going to be. They're going to go on your Facebook, on your Instagram. They're going to pull videos. And, you know, I just think it's fascinating. And I don't know if it's like, like I am conflicted because it feels like a step in the right direction, like where we actually get to know these victims and we can empathize with them. But then mm-hmm. it also feels like it's going in a dark path of like, really exploiting people's real lives. Yeah. It kind of, it felt like too much sometimes. Like I get it where like, I'm sure 
you know, maybe this might have brought some peace to her family to show, like, you know, here is, like, how thrown off guard she was and, like, what was really going on and why this guy is such a dick. But then there were some parts where they were pulling up, like, text messages she was having with her friend about how their sex life was really shitty. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think, you know, this, like, dead woman would want this. (laughs) You know, it's just really – it felt weird. Yeah. It it was one of the weirdest things I've watched in a while. I was – Really fascinated by it, but I still don't know how I ultimately feel. I'm there with you on that one. It's, yeah, I, I, I do weird. think it, it felt fresh and something new. I just don't know if that's a good thing. The thing that disturbs me about that is the idea that we are all kind of documenting our daily lives across like all these different social media platforms. But that content that we're creating isn't exceptionally useful in any way. Like it's it's supposed to be shared among like a few friends who might care about what you're thinking you're doing at mm-hmm. any time, but it's not really like substantive content in any like permanent way. Yeah. Unless you get murdered and uh, someone has to piece together like the background of your life and why you were killed and stuff like that. So it's almost like we're collecting this stuff in case something interesting happens to us and then it becomes like significant on like a cultural level, which that's a disturbing thought. It is. And I, there's this quote where it's like, if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. The product is your information that you're Mm -hmm. putting out there. And to see it used in this way, like you, you know, you see advertisements that are targeted to you and you're like, how the hell did they know I'm into that? And it's like, you freely given that up on the internet, but then to see it used in this way, where it's like, man, if someone kills me, they're going to dig back through my old college photos, oh, some God. silly video I posted on YouTube. And they're going to put it on blast for everyone yeah. to see. <laughs> Unless we can find a way to like, you know, like, I know, Brandon, you're really into like haunting, you know, technical technology haunting, I guess. Yeah. Where maybe we can like get vengeance for people using our shit after we die by like killing them through watching our old YouTube videos that are embarrassing. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, there was this interactive program that you like would give your like Facebook login information to, and it would simulate that a killer was coming to your house to murder you. Oh my God. And like pull. Who does yeah, this? It was, like a, it was like a horror fiction interactive, like fantasy, almost like fantasy game. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but God. it would like pull like your street address and like show oh. them like driving towards you. And, oh like, no. Freak oh, you no, out no. like that. <laughs> wow. So it's almost like, that could even be extrapolated to a different thing where like, it doesn't even have to be that a real person was killed. But like, if we have all this personal identifying information, they could make sort of a plug and play interactive horror movie like that as well. Jesus. It's a good idea. But yeah, (laughs) I'm sure we're going to have like more to come from this too. Like we have more than just 911 calls recorded now, you know? So Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. And well, the other big thing with this was the body cam footage. Oh, from the cops. From the cops. Like, yeah. like you, you see it. So you see her life through the Facebook videos. You see the actual cops investigating. And how immediately guilty he is. Yeah. <laughs> when they walk in and they're like, hey, where's your wife? <laughs> and like the interrogation footage and CCTV mm-hmm. footage. It's like mm-hmm. all this stuff is being recorded now. That to me is the future of the true crime genre. Is this a good time or a bad time to mention that Swamp Flicks is on Instagram now? 
<laughs> like and subscribe. Oh my god! Next next <laughs> thing you know, segue. we're gonna do some uh some lives, and then um somebody might kill us all, and then <laughs> that'll happen. If I die by a ghost haunting my Instagram live broadcast, then um, my life will have come full circle. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the most appropriate way for me to go, I think. Uh, anyway, so what about you, Brandon? What have you been watching? Well, I watched a movie that you hated, but I enjoyed. And then I watched a movie that I think you would enjoy. <laughs> that you hated? No, I liked it a lot. Oh, okay. Um, First of all, I want to start with Septic Man from 2013. Oh, come on, dude. <laughs> Let me explain why I watched it. Okay, um, okay. Our current movie of the month is Monster Brawl, which I made everyone watch. It's a pro wrestling themed <laughs> creature feature, and everyone hated it. <laughs> Every last one of the crew, except for me, does not enjoy that movie. I mean, I watched it. I'm a wrestling hey, fan, and I hated it. We all liked Swamp Gut, I think. And that was yeah, it. there's one that breakout character. <laughs> well, I had to like kind of punish myself uh, as penance. I watched the director's previous film, Septic Man, which James reviewed. You are forgiven. <laughs> within the earliest months of the website. And I'm not going to say it's a good movie. It, it's a bad movie, but I kind of enjoyed it. And I think it's because of the timing that I watched it. It's about this like sewer worker during a water contamination pandemic an entire city is cleared out because the water is contaminated and he is paid like under the table by this corporation to keep working through the pandemic in the sewers which just reminded me so much of what it feels like to go to work right now like (laughs) i have to go downtown all the time among like the highest concentration of people in the city to keep my job so i can pay my rent and like that kind of like financial pressure to keep working during the pandemic i thought was just like resonant and basically what happens in the movie is he gets trapped in a sewer uh septic tank for what seems like weeks and mutates into a turd monster uh and it's kind of like somewhere between trauma like toxic avenger and like eli roth era torture porn movies like it's just gritty nasty browns and greens and like the tone and there's what what I liked about Monster Brawl is they had those like physical gore effects in the makeup and stuff. And they do that here too. Like he just gradually transforms into this like mutant turd monster while trapped in the septic tank. Uh, I don't know. I would call it like a three star movie. It's, it's fine. It's not like particularly great, but um, I think I'm just like a sucker for this, this director's work. Cause I like these two very bad movies that no one else seems to enjoy. Well, the, the thing with toxic Avenger though is like, even that had some level of like a social commentary or something. Whereas this was just a very straightforward, like this guy turns into a shit monster. And it, <laughs> I didn't, I just didn't find it like as funny as it, I thought it was going to be. It was just sort of ugly to look at and made you feel gross. And then it was over and I didn't feel like it really had anything to say except here, watch this guy turn into a shit monster, which I guess, it, I mean, it is called Septic Man, so I guess it lived up to what it was trying to achieve. I never watched this, but it sounds really hilarious. <laughs> it's so gross and like relentlessly grim, even though it's kind of a comedy. But I think the layer in there is just how work and like jobs 
transform you into like a hideous poo beast. Like <laughs> it's about, I think how he feels this like commitment to his job to supposedly um, support his pregnant wife. But she's like, don't do this. Like we have to leave the city. And he's like, no, I gotta be the man for the family. And he just gets sucked further and further into this shitty job that he has. And it makes him into this like mm. grotesque beast and at the end, she comes to rescue him out of the septic tank. And he's like, no, leave me in here. <laughs> he like, decides to keep living in shit. And there's just something about watching this right now during the pandemic and like reluctantly going to work every week now where I'm just like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> it's, it's making us all hideous mutants. Wow. Who knew you would ever like be connected to septic man in that way? <laughs> well, I do want to recommend a good movie, too, because that's technically a bad one. There's a horror film from 2020 on Shudder called Impedagore. Have either of y'all watched that yet? No. No, but I just um, got a Shudder subscription like yesterday. So There are two films from this year you definitely have to watch on there. One's called Host, and it's a haunted Zoom meeting film that was filmed during the pandemic. And it's kind of like an update to Unfriended. Oh, hell yeah. Highly recommend that one. And it's really short. It's like an hour long. Um, Impedagore is an Indonesian film. Um, it debuted at Sundance this year, I think. And it starts off with this woman working in a toll booth. Kind of like the cold open in Scream where like uh, Drew Barrymore is terrorized over the phone by the, the killer. This lady's trapped in a toll booth. And one of the people like paying the money on the highway that's supposed to just drive on kind of hunts her in the booth with a machete. So it starts with this like slasher, like cold open. And then from there, once that's over, it turns into this like ghost story. So it switches genres. She travels back to her childhood village where she was whisked away at, um, as a kid um, because she thinks that her parents, who she was um, disconnected from, might be rich. And the family that she left behind as a child, they loom large in this village. Like they have the biggest house. People are scared of their name. And they're sort of like treated as if they're more of a curse than a family. So it's kind of this like metaphor for like inherited wealth and how like communal betrayal can like kind of linger years after it happens. Um, but the further you dig into this, the um, backstory, it becomes more of just like a traditional curse or like a ghost tale. And it just gets so gruesome, just like gnarly practical effects, gore, like Hellraiser type, just like upsetting imagery. A lot of it involving babies, which adds an extra layer of like discomfort to it. And just by the end, I was like really floored by it. I think it is like a shocking, extreme horror film, but it's also a very traditional, like well-considered ghost story. And it just feels like the kind of mainstream type horror film you wish Hollywood was making all the time. But instead, it's a film festival Indonesian export that, you know, feels more special than it should. Like this should be the standard of like what a good every year we get a solid horror film from mainstream Hollywood like this, but instead it feels like a treat. So I don't know if you're looking for like a really solid Halloween watch and Pedagore is really good. Oh, dude, it's on the list. I'll watch that. Well, what have you been watching? Um, so last night and I'm finishing it up today. I've been watching about, I don't think there's like 20 short films in total for the Louisiana film prize that's currently happening. It's just like a short film festival where there's like 20 short films from all these like Louisiana filmmakers and um, you vote on which one you like the best and whoever wins gets like 25 grand or 
yeah, about 25 grand. Um, so a friend of mine, um, she was an executive producer for one of them. It's like a short film called Inapplicable, um, which I am getting to probably later this afternoon. But I've just been watching those and they've just been nice. Like some are spooky. Um, some are, you know, like a commentary on social issues. Some are just weird and some were horrible. Um, so um, that's what I've been watching more recently. But I have been watching horror movies. I've been trying to catch up on a lot of classics that I've just, you know, for whatever reason, have not watched ever. And I was completely blown away by the movie Daughters of Darkness from 1971. Um, have either of y'all watched that movie i've never heard of it I've ne- yeah i've never heard of it either oh god okay i would love to either like do some sort of like i don't know a lesbian vampire episode or something where we can like watch this and talk about Ooh, it is it a jess franco i don't think so okay but it's crazy sauce so it's basically a combination. I think it's like Belgian and French and German. Like there are, you know, directors and writers and producers from like each different like ethnic background. And they're all like combining, you know, all of their talents in this film. And it takes place in like the Flemish region of Belgium. And it's these two, um, there's a couple, they're like a newlywed couple And they're on a train and like, there's something weird going on. You can kind of tell where, or it immediately opens up where they're like, you know, butt naked, like having like some hardcore sex on this train. And he like, does not want to tell his mother that he got married because his mother doesn't like approve of the girl that he married. So there's this kind of a looming over them. And then they go to this huge hotel Um, on the coast next to like the North sea. And the remainder of the film takes place in this huge old hotel where it's like, they are the only folks in this hotel. It's like off season. And the other guest is a super old vampire who, um, her last name is Bathory. So she's like a descendant of Elizabeth Bathory and she arrives and she looks like Marlene Dietrich. And she's got like, these fabulous like over the top like old hollywood style outfits and she has an assistant who is kind of stylized to be like louise brooks um you know the short bobbed flapper girl style hair and very lesbian very (laughs) yes very lesbian a blood bob (laughs) and she basically like sets her fangs or her eyes on this like new couple and it just it's very sexual like the whole film it's like borderline like i don't want to say like a pornography it really isn't but it's it's a very horny movie and it's also a very art house film too so there's beautiful scenes every the colors are gorgeous the music, the way that like the camera zooms in on certain things is just like, it's so beautiful. I think between that and like Jess Franco and um, the hunger, we could easily do a lesbian vampires episode. Oh, That's, that'd be sounds so like great. a rich topic. So with this one, there is a part that I wanted to talk about that kind of just like, I don't know. I couldn't stop laughing, but he calls his mother and he's like trying to tell his mother that, Oh, I married someone. And it's not really his mother on the other line. It's his older male lover. Who's like twisting an orchid while lounging outside. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he's like, oh no, what have you done? <laughs> so good so there's like a lot of like weird twists like that throughout the film um but i i loved it i thought it was a lot of fun um and i'm glad that i finally watched it I, it's been on like my list to watch for a while because it's been recommended as like you know a good vampire film so and it is it's just that a different really cool a different type of vampire <laughs> so yeah that's probably like the best thing i've watched in a, in a long time in the midst of all like the crappy 70s horror movies i've been indulging in that sounds great yeah yeah also um i like that you're doing an online film fest experience too right now because that's been one of the weirder things i've done this year it's I- so strange because it's like keep playing <laughs> or like pr- press right. play for the next one and then it's like the, there's like all these like p- q a panels that are all like digital it's very bizarre but it's interesting i mean it works yeah i've done a few i did one called we are one global film festival that had like contributions from i don't know like tiff and mm. can and a bunch of other like international fests oh cool and south by southwest was online this year and i'm about to do uh new orleans film fest in november and I'm watching a lot of shorts for that, too. It's kind of nice to just, like, sample little no-budget filmmakers like that. Yeah. It's kind of, like, a nice breath of fresh air from, like, watching a lot of serious stuff. Just to kind of... Not that shorts aren't serious, but, you know, it's it's very attention-grabbing. Because it's, like, one ends and another one starts and you're constantly, like, excited for the next thing. Yeah, a lot of them are kind of jokey, though. Like, because they're short, they kind of have a punchline sometimes. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but they, t- they tend to have a sense of humor to them. Um, actually, today we're talking about an anthology horror film, which kind of usually has the same structure to it. It's like a bunch of shorts that are gathered together by a wraparound. I love anthologies. I had never seen the film we're talking about today until this episode, and I gotta say, I think it is one of the greatest horror anthologies of all time, so I'm very excited yes, to dig into it. I agree. Can't wait to talk about it. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. Motherfucker bullshit! If we did, then what the fuck we doing in a funeral home with your crazy ass up? Yes! Ain't no funeral home! It ain't the Teradome, neither! Welcome to hell! And now it's time for our movie, The Minute. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Um, and it was James's turn to pick this time. And we asked him to come up with a spooky movie to build an episode around. What did you pick for today, James? I picked Tales from the Hood from 1995. My mother owned this movie growing up. And I, when I was a kid, teenager, probably watched it about 10 times. It was definitely one of my favorite movies at that age. And then... You know, decade went by. I hadn't seen it, and so I wanted to revisit it, and so that's why I picked it. And you know, it, it's a horror anthology uh, set in South Central LA. The wraparound stories: you have these three gangsters that are going to this mortuary because they hear that the mortician has some drugs that he's willing to sell them. And when they get there, the mortician basically starts to tell them these series of stories all revolving around black characters and each story in the film kind of touches on a different aspect of the black experience. So you have, you know, the first story about 
these racist cops that frame this politician who then rises from the dead and kills him. You have a story about domestic abuse. You have a story about this racist politician. Basically a caricature of David Duke. Yeah, his last name's even Duke, and he looks just like him. <laughs> yeah, and, and these like slave dolls that come to life, and and then you have this final story about institutional, I guess, like the prison industrial complex and also about gangs and gang violence. So you have all these like potent social commentaries going on. What's really remarkable about this movie, watching it again in 2020 is how on point it is and how none of the shit has changed and how damn entertaining, like the script isn't extremely smart the movie has some really good scares, some really good effects, and the social commentary is true and it's deep and powerful. And it's this like tongue in cheek fun thing too. So it like knocks it out of the park. And I do now watching it again, I have to say it's held up remarkably well and is probably one of the best horror anthologies of all time. So I guess we can get into some of the particular stories, but what what did you guys think of the movie? I loved it. I loved like how, you know, horror, I mean, who would think that you can use, well, I mean, you can, but horror to like really like provoke your thought on like all these social justice issues that are still occurring today. So it was just kind of an interesting experience with that. Um, but I love, love, love anthologies and I haven't really seen this movie. So I loved it. Um, and it did, you know, play out as an anthology very well. And I loved our, like, uh, the crypt keeper um, of the anthology, Mr. Sims, where he just looks like he got electrocuted over and over again. And um, <laughs> I found him to be very entertaining. I loved him. Yeah, he's played by Clarence Williams III, yeah. who's a pretty prominent black actor. So and good. He, yeah, and he just goes 100% into that role. <laughs> you know, one thing about the the anthology films that struck me watching this is like, I feel like the number of stories in the movie matter. Cause I've seen some where it's like five stories. Usually you have like a couple of ones that are kind of mediocre. And mm-hmm. so the movie sort of falls flat or you have three stories where they better all be good. Cause if one is bad, then a third of the movie's bad. Right. But this one, like four seems to be the magic number. It is. Like the pacing of this movie is so good. Just like each story is given the perfect amount of time and the movie doesn't feel rushed. It's like just the perfect amount of stories. I feel like four, four is the number. They're all consistent in quality and they're also all consistent in theme, which those are the two problems that horror anthologies run into. Like, Usually one segment will be so bad and you're like, well, okay, you're allowed one stinker. I think the closest maybe this one comes to is the white politician being attacked by the Charles band dolls. I don't think that one's as like strong as some of the others, but even then it's not a bad segment. <laughs> that was my favorite one. Oh, well maybe, okay, maybe I'm wrong there. <laughs> but also I think that the political theme that like binds them all together is really clear and mm-hmm. easy to see as well. You know? Yeah. I think what really took me back watching this was like, you know, now we're in kind of the era in a way of, I think of like Get Out, where it's sort of getting at this like post 
racial thing where like it's kind of this like racism that's lurking right below the surface. And what you see in this movie, it's right, you know, after the Rodney King beatings and it maybe because it's the nineties too, which were sort of like a in your face time, it's very confrontational and it's not like trying to get into the complexity of the cops or of politicians. It's just saying like, no, these cops are racist as fuck and they want to kill black people. The politicians are racist and they don't give a shit about black. It's just like so in your face. And I don't know, that feel felt like very fresh. I like that too. Like, you know, don't beat around the bush. Like this is an issue, like show it for what it is. Yeah. And there's also something cathartic about the way these stories are told where there's like a supernatural justice because as we've seen in real life, like continuing even past Rodney King, like to recent stuff like Eric Garner or Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. or George Floyd, um, there is no justice because the system is designed so there won't be. So right. like to watch this politician who's executed by cops come back from the grave and make sure that justice is carried out or this like voodoo priestess slave woman like using her powers from beyond the grave to like erect these Charles Band dolls to attack this like David Duke motherfucker like there is like a supernatural execution of justice in every one of these stories and I I will say overall I was really taken aback by how grim and like dark this film is um, there is like a catharsis to that as well, which you get and get out too. Um, at the end, you know, right? There is like a relief at the end, and I think this movie delivers that at the end of each segment in its own way too. Like the horrific things that happen are usually some kind of like cathartic, supernatural execution of justice that we don't get to see in the real world. Yeah, and I, and I think too because it was directed by a black man, you know, two of the stories are dealing with kind of the institutions of racism. You have the police and politics, but it also delves into like family life. Like mm-hmm. my my favorite story is the one involving the abusive stepdad who literally turns into this monster played by David Allen Greer, who like, who had any idea that he could be that menacing. I did remember hearing um, that he is like a stage actor who was like, a renowned dramatist like years before he was on living color. Like he was like way older than most. Yeah. Of the I think he's a, a trained like Shakespearean actor. Right. Right. So yeah. Uh, I don't think people expected that out of him in the movie, but obviously he had honed that craft cause he's a fucking terrifying monster in this film. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last story is kind of about black on black violence and the gang mentality and how that like destroys black community. So it's like, talking about kind of the inner black world and then also these outside oppressive forces. So it just feels like a very well-rounded, like really touching on kind of the, some of the horrific things that happen as part of the black experience. And I think all that is held up extremely well. The two things that surprised me most about this movie, because I didn't know much of anything about it other than hearing recently, like in recent years, like, Oh, this is like a, you know, an overlooked gem in a lot of ways. One is tone. I knew of the mortician character and how he's kind of like this master of ceremonies. And based on the clips I had seen of him running the show, I kind of expected this to be kind of a horror comedy and like light in tone. 
and it really is not. This is not like a goofball horror anthology. No, it's like heavy as fuck. And like even in parts where you could tell they're trying to like lighten the mood and add a little humor, it just it's so dark <laughs> that you don't yeah. even feel it. <laughs> like the domestic violence stuff and the gang violence stuff that you're talking about is so hard to watch. Like David Allen Greer beating his wife or um, the images of gang violence are overlaid in like a parallel with like lynchings mm-hmm. and like real life footage of that systemic murder. And it's really just like breathtaking how politically engaged the film is. Like it is politically angry and that comes across in the work so much um, where the uh, character played by Clarence Williams really is over the top and fun. But I don't think most of the movie is in that way. Mm-mm. And the other thing that surprised me besides the tone was like how surreal some of the images are. It reminded me a little bit of like Screaming Mad George style surreal like gore effects. Yeah. Especially in the domestic abuse part with like, you know, his whole body getting twisted. Yeah. He's like connected uh, magically to this drawing a little kid made of him as a monster. And when he crumbles the paper, David Allen Greer's body also crumbles mm. in this like impossible configuration. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another shot of a cop being crucified on a graffiti mural and his body melts into graffiti yeah. and then reforms into the image. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and it is gnarly. just like the movie has like a really scrappy budget. Like there are a lot of scenes that are really bare bones and almost feel like a made for TV, like almost like a tales from the crypt episode, which obviously the title is referencing the same kind of EC comics background, mm-hmm. but where they pull out the budget and where they go big in the effects, it is so effective and so great. The ending as well really goes into some horrifically supernatural territory. And yeah, I was, I was floored by those two things by how dark and like politically angry it was. And also just by how surreal and over the top the gore effects were considering the limits of its budget. And it just really was like a well-made film in those two ways. Yeah. I remember watching as a kid that, final story where you know the gangbangers basically has to confront the victims of drive-by shootings or you know basically all the people he's killed and it's shot with this like strobe effect and you see guys with like their heads blown open and little girls shot in the chest and it's just like totally horrifying you know it's really getting at the actual horror of some of these killings like in a very real way I mean, it's like a horror film in a, a really true sense of the word. That stuff happens, especially in New Orleans, kind of more frequently whenever kids are like just hanging out in their bedrooms and like a bullet goes through the wall and like kills them. So that part when that little girl was like, you know, he's like, well, you were just in like the wrong place at the wrong time. And that whole situation I thought was like just, ugh, it was just so hard to watch, but I don't know. I thought of all those like, you know, kid deaths that happen around here. Yeah. I mean, you read about all the time you sort of become numb to it after a while, but um, yeah, the shit's real. I think another thing that's like really interesting too, is how those real like rip from the headlines kind of situations. I mean, even like David Duke is like a name you can put, or like Rodney King is a name you can put to the figures in the film and what they're representing. Mm Mm-hmm that stuff is woven so seamlessly into horror tropes. Like there's zombies and ghosts and mad scientists and the devil, like in this movie, like it's not creating new lore. Really. It's playing on things we're already familiar with. 
even like the evil dolls being animated we've seen that in films before but instead of like inventing a new way for it to horrify you the way like get out does where it like comes up with a scenario to complete the metaphor uh, that like body possession sci-fi angle that movie has in this case it's like very traditional in its horror anthology choices like you have your doll segment you have your zombie segment and so on um, and i just found that really impressive that like it both feels fresh in the topic that it's tackling and like really traditional in the like mode of discussing that First of all, horror is like any other film genre in the sense that representation matters. Our films, as a culture, should look like our nation. This is kind of a no-brainer, but it's been a long journey. They can learn to empathize with us and yell and scream on our behalf, and that's in us and other marginalized groups and queer characters. There's room for everybody. I think as a culture, we all just need to learn how to see the humanity in each other. And I'm just really grateful that we've reached the time when we can show our more of our full measure of humanity on film. We were just talking about how, or I was just talking about how uh, Tales from the Hood um, fits into like a horror tradition. Like it's like playing with zombie lore and ghosts and evil dolls and mad scientists and that kind of iconography. And I thought since we were going to talk about this film, I, I wanted everyone to watch the documentary where I had first heard about it recently, or at least heard about how important it was. There is a documentary from 2019 on Shudder called Horror Noir, and it's based off of a book by Robin R. Means Coleman, who's in the film itself. This movie was greenlit the day after Get Out won its Oscar, too. This is very much like a post-Get Out like re-examination of what black representation and horror means and like what it looks like. Obviously the book was written before that, but the film is like very much like capitalizing on the, on this moment where we're using horror metaphors to sort of deal with black life and like black horror in the real sense. I think the documentary is very good. It's very short and to the point, and it does a good job the way the book does of separating horror into decades like it says like in the 30s and 40s representation was like this in the 70s it was like this and sort of like building a continuum like that it starts off sort of talking about how you know early in cinema black people were represented in blackface by white people and they weren't really on the screen as anything but white people playing caricatures of them being scared or being terrifying in like a voodoo curse kind of sense and that gradually got better until the 70s where there was a black exploitation boom like where there's just more black people on screen doing other things in genre besides just being servants and in the background um, but even that era was like problematic and what i thought was interesting and why it was worth discussing the film in terms of like tales from the hood and the era it was made in is that the movie calls the 1990s a beautiful renaissance it calls it the black horror renaissance it positions spike lee as being an instigator in this where like more black movies were being made in general so that meant more black horror films were being made and it also singles out tales from the hood as being maybe the best black horror film pre get out uh, i think that's pretty clear in the way it describes these movies so i don't know i, I don't know if y'all had seen this documentary before the book, I have not read through it all the way through right now. I'm a few chapters into it, but I think it does like an interesting thing where it 
differentiates two different ideas. One is called blacks in horror, which is like white people making movies with black people in them. And there's another thing called black horror, which is kind of the tales from the hood side where it's like black people making movies about their own communities and using horror as like, you know, as a vehicle for that. So um, I'm kind of curious what y'all thought about horror noir as a documentary and like what it had to say about the nineties in particular. I kind of felt that when Get Out came out, how like everyone kind of started to think like, are there any other black horror movies? <laughs> you know, I think that's what like got the whole like, you know, world kind of talking about that again. And um, I, I did like how all of this kind of like broke it down by time periods and like the different types of horror films that came through. And honestly, like I haven't seen a lot of them. So it kind of was a eye opener for me to kind of see like, oh, there's a lot out there you should probably get into. I, I thought it was a really enlightening documentary, honestly, like, especially because I, you know, Brandon, we watch a lot of black exploitation films and I like that it kind of delved into the complexity of that, where it is good to have black representation on film, but you know, being like pimps and drug dealers and that sort of thing like it was a maybe a step forward and a step back or like two step forward one back uh and then you know the 80s where they were always just like the sidekick or the first one to get killed mm -hmm. but yeah and then something about the 90s where just the culture caught up and you had so many you know like the three we're gonna talk about today you know vampire in brooklyn was another one i remember yeah demon knight D yeah, Demon Knight. Bones. <laughs> they Bones. <laughs> they kind of point out Bones as being like the end of this 90s wave. I think that was like early 2000s, but they were like, yeah, this fits in with that like Spike Lee wave. Mm -hmm. Also because it was directed by Ernest Dickerson, who worked with Spike Lee all the time. Also very much worth noting that Spike Lee and his production company, 40 Acres and a Mule, produced Tales from the Hood. Yep. Yeah, he like very directly gave birth to this black horror renaissance um, with his, you know, financial backing as well as everything else. I, I think another thing I want to touch on, I thought was interesting was like, like you said, you have these movies that have a, a black protagonist, but it's directed by like a white guy. And you know, like we just did an episode a little while back on like serpent and the rainbow mm -hmm. and Wes Craven also did people under the stairs, which we're going to talk about. And in a weird way, like I, now that I think about it, you can kind of feel when it's a white director yeah. doing a black story. Whereas again, why I love tales from the hood so much, you could tell like a white guy could not, could not make tales from the hood. That has to be a black director. Well, that's why it came off like, and, and all these films like in, you know, that, that nineties Renaissance, like filmed by, you know, and created by black people. It's because they have this connection with, I mean, they're living the black experience, you know, where someone who's white can attempt to tap into that, but it'll never, ever truly come across like something like the masterpiece that is Tales from the Hood, especially. But why, you know, white directors can do a good job. Like, right. They, in the movie Hornor, they touch on uh, Night of the Living Dead, which, you know, was a breakthrough, was a breakthrough directed by George Romero. And this was during like the civil rights movement, which was like a pretty ballsy choice. So he got it right. Yeah, you know, it's not to say that white directors can't do black stories, but there's just something palpable that you can just feel the difference when it's a black mm -hmm. director doing a black story. 
It's almost like it impacts the soul of the movie. Yeah, I like that the book in particular, I don't know if they do this in the movie as much. The two are getting kind of confused in my mind, but it makes it a very clear difference between like black horror and blacks in horror. And that is the difference. It's like, who is the creative team behind it? And today, even we're, we're talking about one black horror film, which is Tales from the Hood. And we're talking about two other blacks in horror film, mm-hmm. which is more like white creators using black representation to tell these different like urban stories. So I don't know. I just thought it was good context for that. And, you know, it's it's a talking heads documentary. It's a lot of people just sort of like discussing themes and images from movies over the past seven or so decades. So it's not that visually interesting. Except I, I like that they filmed it in a movie theater. So you have these like black creatives watching themselves be represented on screen in a movie theater context. So it's like not only are we the subject, we're also the audience. So they can like react in real time to like what they're seeing and how they're seeing themselves. I thought that was an interesting visual touch to the documentary as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, Brittany, what film did you pick for us to discuss in this context? So the film that I picked is Wes Craven's um, The People Under the Stairs from 1991. Um, I grew up watching this movie a lot. One, I remember there was a TV version that would play on like, you know, sci-fi TBS or whatever that kind of cut out more of the gorier parts. So whenever, you know, I became an adult and I got a DVD player and I started buying my own movies, watching it again, like, kind of unedited the film you know the tv version i'd watched all my life was just it got even more intense this is a pretty gory film (laughs) it's traumatizing very traumatizing i think it's hilarious also true (laughs) (laughs) so the people under the stairs is kind of what it sounds like but when you just read that title i think a lot assume that the the monsters in this movie are the people under the stairs and they are like the least scariest thing about this whole film. So this film kind of centers around this kid who's like 13 and his name's fool. Like that's his nickname and fool lives in the projects where he has his mother who's dying of cancer and his sister who's, you know, trying to raise him and one of the guys in the neighborhood, um, Leroy, who's played by Ving Rhames, he is like, you know, the, the people that own this place are landlords. They're loaded. Like, they have, like, literal gold in their home. We need to go get some of that shit so, you know, your mom can have, you know, the health care she deserves and you don't have to worry about paying the rent and getting evicted. So he ends up getting full to join him and someone else to devise this plan of like getting into the landlord's home and it unleashes something crazy. Like I think they just expect, Oh, they're just some like, you know, crazy old assholes. We'll be able to go in, take that crap and leave. And it just turns out to be pure hell. Like this is a house. When you open the doors, it is hell. The two landlords are, they go by mommy and daddy. (laughs) I know it's, they're, that shit crazy and they're actually brother and sister and it's like they're just role-playing this mom and dad fantasy played by nadine and big ed from twin peaks yes exactly. <laughs> i love that so much i did not realize that that made me so happy yes so they are so icky like they're the monsters in this movie and 
what they find out or what fool finds out once he goes in and he's pretty much the only one to kind of survive it. Um, Cause Leroy doesn't quite make it all the way through in the house, but fool does that. There are, there's someone in the walls. So there's this kind of like monsterish type person hanging out in the walls. And then he finds like a, you know, under the stairs, just a, this basement flooded with, all these like monsters, like pale skin, long fingernails. You just kind of hear grunts and you see a flashlight moving. And it turns out that these are all like children <laughs> who've just like grown up in the walls and under the stairs. They have committed a sin as per the guidelines of mommy and daddy, um, where they've either gotten like, you know, I'm sure like their eyes gouged out, tongues cut out. They can't really talk. And there is a girl that does not live under the stairs and um, her name's Alice. So she follows their rules, which is why, you know, she didn't end up like, you know, her brothers, I guess that are under the stairs. So yeah, so fool finds out like, you know, all this insanity is happening within the house. And these two psychos are after him, like pure hunting mentality. Like they're ready to kill this kid and get him out of the house. One of them's dressed in mommy dearest drag. And the mm -hmm. other one is dressed in a full S&M gear outfit. Yep. Yeah. Cause he gets like horny off of like shooting his gun and being crazy. Oh God. There's just, these two people are like so terrifying and like rewatching it again recently. Oh, like just their, the way they talk to each other, the smeared red lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> on her face where I, ugh, it's just all so gross. Um, and all the cannibalism in this movie is pretty disgusting too. But um, these two people, mommy and daddy really represent like that Reagan era couple. <laughs> and they're the most racist fucking assholes ever too. And they're the ones who are of course the landlords for a large black community. And yeah, I mean, shit goes down like full, basically finds out yeah there's money he finds the money and he's able to escape but he doesn't want to like leave this person he's befriended alice with these two psychopaths um so he kind of goes back to get her out of there and while he does go back he's able to sort of like defeat mommy and daddy and they're of course like most fucking old rich white people instead of you know putting their their money back into the economy they like to store it in the walls and just kind of hoard it for no fucking reason because that house was so gross and trashy so it's like what are they saving their money for anyway and they also like to let their properties go to shit so that they can turn them into expensive condos and commercial properties just to hoard money just to hoard more money yeah it's a gentrification story yeah and it's so true it's um recently a coworker was saying telling us the story and he's like, oh, you know, he had an aunt who lived out in Metairie. And he's like, you know, when she died, her whole house was just lined with like $10 million. And most of it was just like, it was so old and moldy that it just wasn't even usable anymore. It just crumbled. And I'm like, that's so gross. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And think of like how many other people are like that. So it reminded me of these psychos. Think of how many billionaires got richer during this pandemic while the rest of us have been yeah. like barely scraping by. And they're just using $100 bills for insulation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but yeah, like this movie, it's it's humorous. Like I think the kid that plays Fool is super funny. Like he's an awesome like child actor. He's got humor. And 
it's also fucking terrifying too. The incest part of it all kind of freaked me out. Even though you don't see them, obviously they're calling each other mom and dad. You know they're doing something weird. They're dressed in uh, S&M gear. S&M gear. And like with Alice, you know, which I, I kind of realized watching it for this most recent time, I didn't realize that she was probably being sexually abused too because there's this part where dad, daddy, I hate saying that word. He is like in his gimp gear and he's like grabbing his crotch while he's going to punish her. And I'm like, oh my God, like that's probably even added on top of it. And I don't know why I didn't see that until like this most recent watch. Like I didn't put that piece together. I thought they were just like hitting her and stuff. And then mommy um, gets a really sick satisfaction of making her bathe in like scalding hot water and like mm. scrubbing her naked body. Yeah. So mommy's just as guilty of that. Oh, totally. I also was a little worried the movie was going to have a sleepaway camp kind of reveal because they put so much emphasis on how all the boys had the part of them cut off that made them naughty. And she was the one girl in the house. So I was kind of expecting a really fucked up twist there. That thankfully never came, but I don't know. There's just something really they upsetting. They come out and then they're free and they're like kind of cool almost. Yeah. They're kind of heartthrobs. Yeah. Oh, I had the hots for that one with the long hair. The first one that kind of comes out. Not Roach, but um, <laughs> <laughs> not definitely not Roach. The surfer uh, troglodyte guy. Yeah. The surfer like metal looking guy. <laughs> um. So yeah. That is essentially the people under the stairs. And, you know, I kind of, you know, kind of read up a little more on it. And I realized that the inspiration from this was a mix between like a dream that Wes Craven had while he was in Brussels at a film fest. And then a a combination of that with like a real life event that happened in Santa Monica where he was living, where these two guys broke into someone's house the neighbor saw called the cops and when the cops got there they didn't catch the burglars but they found like two kids living in the walls who had never seen the light of day and they like could only communicate with each other they they, like developed their own way of communication they were like feral children Hmm. so he was kind of inspired by both of those for this movie and i think what's so interesting about this film is like most people would think like, oh, like there's a robbery going on, like someone's getting robbed. And it's like this somewhat minor crime unveil- unveils like pure evil, you know, like that's been like hidden under the surface. So it's almost like if Fool and Leroy would not have entered that home and robbed it, like this would have probably gone on forever. And Alice would have never gotten out. It's also kind of like a heist movie in that way, too. Uh, Even though they bungle the heist, it's supposed to be them planning to steal the gold later. uh, (laughs) And they immediately get caught and trapped in the house and have to, like, break out this other prisoner they didn't know was in there and et cetera. And yeah, and there are there is like a lot lot of dog violence that was kind of hard to watch, too. Um, There are these like really I fucking love Rottweilers. And there's a part where one gets like stabbed and his like little head tilts. I cry. I don't know why I was. I'm emotional right now, but um, I cried for that because <laughs> I was watching it with a nook, and I'm like, "That's never gonna happen to you." <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I know you guys have watched this probably before, probably many times. But how did y'all feel on this like most recent watch? I laughed a lot, like especially when Daddy came out in his gimp costume and he's just blasting the shotgun all throughout the house. I. I thought it was a hoot. I was just wondering how the neighbors 
didn't hear the shotgun going off constantly. <laughs> they probably did. I just didn't care to report it. <laughs> it's probably just a Tuesday over there. Yeah, right. Uh, right. The humor. There is like a lot of like you know dark comedy in this movie too. Like. I laughed. My favorite part is when Alice falls through the ceiling and lands on her mother and like bashes her head into the floor. I would watch this with my cousin on like, you know, we would have like our sleepovers, you know, on Fridays, we would rent movies. And this was one of the many ones. And we would reenact that part where um, his like mom's house was like lifted a little bit. So he would like pretend to be the mother and he would come out and say like, there's no community here. And then I would just jump on top of him. (laughs) (laughs) So um, yeah, I got some giggles from that part. And I do think like what you were saying about they're basically stand-ins for Nancy and Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Yes. I kind of picked up on that. I was thinking of it more as like conservatism in general. Like just they're pretending, oh, mommy and daddy were this picture perfect, idyllic family. And I think it was following the Bible. (laughs) Right. Well, and I think it was clever too to get these two characters or two actors from Twin Peaks, which sort of does the same thing, shows the dark underbelly of this perfect, you know, 1950s small town exterior. Yeah. And that with the like, like you said, the hoarding of wealth. Yeah. It seemed to be like critical of conservatism and late eighties capitalism and Reaganomics, you know, cause there was also that one part where they, I think they actually showed footage of the, what the first Gulf war. Right. They were playing, they had a TV set up for the sons under the stairs and it right. was just the Gulf war playing. So, yeah. So they're obviously like hungry for, for war, hoarding money, pretend to have these religious values, but secretly they're, they're racist and they're exploiting people to make money. Like it, it definitely had stuff to say, but in general, for me, it was just kind of a fun ride. It was, you know, I don't think the social commentary thing was like its main focus. It was like a nice little thing on the side, but really it was just an unhinged, like batshit crazy sort of story. There's not, and I mean, maybe I'm just not thinking of them. I can't think of a lot of horror movies where the villain or the monster is like a racist duo like this one, you know? And that's like real life monsters that we're dealing with right now in our world. It's like these racist assholes. So it's kind of, you know, interesting seeing like them as like the monsters in this movie. Cause I don't think a lot of movies really do that. Like in the, the way that this one does. Well, I think too, like the choice of having a young black child actor as the protagonist, I think was very mm-hmm. smart. Cause I can't think of a movie before that where the main protagonist was a black child actor. I don't know. I could be wrong, but I think and he has so much charisma too, for like a kid actor, you know, he's, he's so good. Yeah, he is good. What I really liked about it is that that perspective choice, I think pushes the film into the territory of a genre. I love very much, which is the R rated children's film. This movie is like (laughs) extremely vulgar and traumatizing and violent and upsetting and sexually nightmarish. But it's made with the sensibilities of like a Nickelodeon production. Where it's like a a kid that's caught in a kooky situation. (laughs) Yeah. There's a shot where the kid drops to his knees and punches 
the um, gimp character in the nuts and basically his eyes cross and goes, whoa, um, like right. this is an over the top like Disney Channel film. It was kind of like a R-rated like Goosebumps <laughs> episode. Exactly. Mm. Or even just like a caper where like the kids like save the community center, except in this case, they're saving it from two like sexually violent monsters. I don't know. I just love that conflict and sensibilities. Like when something can be like R rated in a extreme horror kind of way and also feel like it was made directly for children. Like there's something really interesting about that conflict of uh, sensibility that sort of overlaps with the other thing I like about it is that it's not subtle at all. Like all these things we're talking about, like Reaganomics and Bible belts, morality being like the real evil in the world. That's not anything you have to dig for or like look for the metaphor. It's all on the surface Mm -hmm. and exaggerated to the point where it is grotesquely amusing, Uh, which I mean, that stuff is fucking funny. Like the 700 club lunatics out there, are so evil <laughs> that it is amusing to gawk at them. Yeah, and I think like to contrast it to Tales from the Hood, which I think Tales from the Hood does the exact same thing, but it's the opposite reaction where it's not amusing. It's actually terrifying. It's interesting those two films do a similar thing, like putting it right in your face, black and white. Do you know it's a, a good middle ground there? What's that? Um, black Klansman. They have these like over the top racist characters that are played with these like comedy beats, but the punchlines are all like deeply upsetting. I'm thinking of the wife character who's like baking cookies for the clan meetings and stuff like that. Like she feels like a villain out of like a children's film and it's played with that same broad comedy tone, but the racist dialogue that comes out of her mouth is like stomach churning and mm-hmm. not amusing. That's a, I mean that's a really good point. I think the way that film ends too Spike Lee saying like these racist People are like stupid and ridiculous and we should laugh at them, but they're also like deeply dangerous. So, and I think that is getting to some truth. Like it can be both. Yeah. I think um, there was supposed to be like a reboot miniseries a couple years ago. Um, It was one of the last things I think that Wes Craven was like working on until he died. So nothing ever came of it. But it was supposed to be like a mini series of uh, the people under the stairs, like on sci-fi or something like that. So I think it would be kind of cool to see what a reboot of this would look like. You know, we've been talking about Wes Craven a lot lately. I know. <laughs> Unintentionally. <laughs> yeah, no, it just kind of naturally came up. Yeah. We did a Nightmare on Elm Street episode and we talked about The Serpent and the Rainbow. Yeah. And now we're talking about this film. And I remember when I first saw Get Out in the theater... He was the number one director in my mind. Like he was like, oh, this guy is a stylistic influence on what Jordan Peele is doing in this film, like on a visual language kind of level, not not even on this like racial metaphor theme, you know? I mean, that might even be a good transition to the next film. I think watching Candyman, that movie feels like Wes Craven directed it, even maybe even more so than People Under the Stairs in some way that like surrealist nightmare imagery tone of Candyman from 1992 feels like a Wes Craven film. It reminded me a lot of nightmare on Elm street. Like, yeah, for sure. That dream logic and dreams yep. intersecting with reality. And you don't know what's real. You're like blacking out. Yeah. And you know, it also has the major influence of Clive Barker who wrote the uh, short story that it's based on that has that like sexual seduction layer to it. 
something that horror noir called out as like a continuation of a very harmful trope of like the black man seducing the white woman. Cause the protagonist of Candyman is a white woman, even though Candyman himself is terrorizing a black community. This is a 1992 film. I had not seen it until recently because we talked about paper house, which was a, another film from director Bernard Rose. He's a British filmmaker. Clive Barker is a British novelist. And the story and the direction are talking about American race issues and are like transported to an American soil and American context, which puts a lot of pressure on them to live up to a very sensitive topic here. Um, I don't know if they necessarily pull that off, but it is an interesting film and it is a scary movie. I think it's probably one of the films that like scared most children who saw it like too early. Like it's one of those titles that you see like as a child's, and, you know, the central myth of the film is that if you say Candyman in the mirror five times, then he'll appear behind you and kill you with his hook for a hand and his bees for a body. We would do that at sleepovers when I was like a preteen instead of like blood, Bloody Mary became boring and we just swapped to Candyman. Yeah, it, it's like effectively scary to the point where the lore is bigger than the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie's kind of about that. It's about urban legends. Uh, there's a college professor who is a white woman and she's studying the urban legend of Candyman and how it's been spread and contorted from its original message. The original version of the story was that a slave who was killed for crossing racial lines to seduce a white woman who fell in love with him and they were both killed and he was killed. I think his hand was chopped off and he was covered in honey. So that bees stung him to death. Yeah. He was like a famous, pretty famous artist that fell in love with one of his subjects and as punishment, they cut off his hand so he couldn't paint anymore. And then they covered him with bees. And that gives him a lot of like horrific iconography, you know, the way, the way like Jason has like the hockey mask or um, Mike Myers has that uh, William Shatner mask that he wears. <laughs> so you have this like hook for a hand, his body's made of bees. He wears this like lush fur coat and he's a very seductive figure. And he haunts a housing project called Cabrini Green in Chicago, an infamous housing project. And as this white woman interrogates the people there about the Candyman story, she sort of like brings him into the real world and causes more horror. Mm -hmm. I think the criticism that horror noir has against this film is obviously valid, that it's continuing this trope of the black man seducing the white woman and him being a threat because of his like hypersexuality because Candyman is very seductive the way that like pin has is in a uh, hellraiser and the way a lot of clive barker villains are but the other thing it's doing is it is being critical of this like white woman for inserting herself into this black community and by sort of like playing around with this thing she considers just to be a superstition but is actually like a real evil she brings in more horror into their lives and violence. And by the end of the film, she becomes the monster. Yeah. Just this like disregard for the, you know, like using them just to kind of like get her, her paper done. You know what I mean? Like if Candyman, I was sort of taking Candyman to represent institutional racism or like generational racism. And in that sense, like her being a white woman is kind of a good choice. This white liberal that the whole reason he comes 
into the world is because he tells her that like she doesn't believe in him. Essentially, like she's killed his myth, and now he has to like come back and haunt her. So in that sense, it's like like a lot of white people that don't believe that racism is real anymore. And it's like by not believing in that idea, you bring more of it into the world. I thought that mm-hmm. was like an interesting idea that the film was playing around with a little bit. Yeah. I picked up on that and I didn't pick up on that before, probably because I haven't seen this in so long. But yeah, like seeing how like you have all these, you know, black people who are living this, telling you this, and you decide that they're all crazy. Are you totally disregarding everything? So you keep moving forward with it. And now your ass is getting punished like you kind of deserve. <laughs> and she keeps like assuring them, you know, don't worry, I'm not the cops. But as soon as she gets beat up by this man who's pretending to be the candy man, there. she immediately like, calls the cops and gets him arrested <laughs> and then right. brings the cops into their lives. So she's like an extension of the police state. And yeah, I just think that she is doing a lot of like active harm in the film. So it's not just about her being the victim, the way that candy man is literally inviting her. He says, be my victim a bunch of times. It's not just about that. Like she's also enacting this like real evil onto the community and they eventually take her side, which is another thing to explore. But I don't know. I was just surprised by that conflict. Like, yeah, it is continuing these like harmful tropes, but it's also critical of her. Right. No, I think another one too is like, she has her like graduate partner or whatever is a black woman. And that definitely falls into the trope of like the black sidekick who dies halfway into the movie. Yeah. Uh, Rachel true from, um, the craft talked a lot about that, how like a lot of her roles in the nineties was just to ask the white character, like, are you okay? Right. Are you okay? And that's definitely the character in this film as well. But see again. And like with the decision for him to like seduce this white woman, that's problematic. But when you think about it in terms of his like history is like, he was killed because he fell in love with a white woman. So it would kind of make sense that he's going to haunt, a woman that reminds him of his previous love. You know, like there were a lot of things like that in the movie where it's like, Oh, I see how this is like problematic, but wait, when I think about it some more, it kind of works in the story. And there was a lot of that going on. There was a part like, you know, that part where she like looks on the wall and it says like, it was you all along Helen or something like that. And there's like this drawing where it kind of looks like her like was that like a historical kind of graffiti drawing of like the legend and like his i think so i didn't I think get so that but until i didn't think it looked anything like her at all no. <laughs> <laughs> well it was like if it would have been a stick figure drawing of her. well another another thing like that was uh and i think they touch on this in horror noir like why is mm-hmm. he haunting the projects if it's the white people that killed him, shouldn't be ha- he be haunting the high-rise condominiums on the other side of town? I think that's justified in the script in the sense that, like you said earlier, like her killing their skepticism with like capturing the real Candyman, quote unquote, before like the the actual supernatural one appears. She cuts down his congregation, the people who believe in him, so he loses his power and like almost disappears. So like the reason he's stuck in the Cabrini green project is that he has people who believe in him there. And that's what keeps him alive 
in the afterlife. Mm. Well, and also if you think about it, you know, the fact that he was effectively lynched and he's kind of symbolic of this history of racism in this country, you know, I feel like that history of racism is haunting in a very real way in like the projects in a way that it's not haunting like the super upper middle class that live in like the kind of place that the protagonist in this film can afford to live in. She's privileged enough to not have to think about that past. Right. Even though it's like visible from her window. So I, I just really thought that dynamic was interesting. All these little things where you can kind of take it one way or the other, but I think ultimately the script was smart and I think it stayed true to the story. And I think the movie overall is very effective and it's really scary. There's some terrifying images. The score from Philip Glass is really good. Oh, it's so good. Um, That's probably one of my favorite things about it. It has like the gross out horror too, where, you know, like when she goes into like that public Oh God, the shit smeared on the walls. Oh, just shit and fucking blood and a toilet full of bees. Like, yeah, it's just like septic man. Yeah, (laughs) it uh, just like, you know, and like the in between the walls with just like this grime and old, old sticky blood and like uh, all of that. You feel it. It's so effective. I love, too, that like (laughs) she keeps getting framed for these murders. I don't know. Just what a horrifying situation just to black out and you wake up and you're covered in blood and you like your best friend is disemboweled right next to you. But at the same time, even though she isn't stabbing those people the way she's being framed for, she is like causing violence by sort of like treating these people's lives as a playground. And I think the, the horror noir criticism of the film, like when you're talking about like, why is he haunting Cabrini green? That's extremely valid when it comes to like, why would he kill some old lady that happens to live next door to this like single mother? That doesn't make much sense. But we don't see that. That's like something that happens before the film. What we see is this woman who's like causing violence in the black community that is doubled and like mirrored in her own local community. Like the people in her immediate circle get physically eviscerated as she's like bringing police presence and like scrutiny in this black community that's like just inside her window. So I don't know. It's like a weird mixed bag. I think it comes from, you know, British creatives coming in to talk about American racial dynamics, which is like a very different system given our like mass slavery history that, you know, British colonialism has some parallels to, but it isn't quite the same dynamic. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It, it, it is a mixed bag. I don't think the movie like, I don't think the movie is like exceptional and it's like politics in any way. But it is like exceptional in how scary and eerie it is and disorienting and where it does score political points is really effective, I think. And and the way that character transforms from a victim to a supernatural murderer herself, I think is interesting. Yeah, I, I liked I really liked the way the film ended with her like coming back to haunt her, you know, flandering ex-husband. I thought that was a nice way to, to wrap up the story. And it feels like just a start. Like, it's only going to get more violent from there. Yeah. Well, there's, like, uh, two sequels to this that I haven't seen. And I'm curious if it follows Helen. <laughs> I have seen those. Oh, oh, Brandon, hello. They do not follow <laughs> Helen at all. Okay, um, never mind. They, they're not good. The first one's kind of fun because it's set in New Orleans, Candyman 2. It's set during Mardi Gras. 
and it is the most like Nolans y'all like cartoonish version of this city that I've seen in a movie in a long time. So it's kind of fun for that. I, I believe there's like a WWOZ DJ that's like into the man with the hook for a hand out there. Calm down. Have some gumbo or something. Uh, <laughs> it's like really over the top. <laughs> and the third one is set in LA during a day of the dead celebration. So it, instead of like digging further into like the Candyman lore as set out here, it kind of looks to other cultures and other like regions of the U.S. to like plug in Candyman in those situations. Um, so it's kind of disappointing in that way. And it's also directed by people who aren't as good as Bernard Rose is. So it, it's not as scary, but it's still kind of fun, especially the second one. Nice. Well, I appreciated all three of these films more than I expected to, even though I had seen two of them before just watching them in this context and thinking of like the nineties as this like Renaissance and like black representation and black horror, especially since, you know, when get out came out recently, it, that was kind of treated as this like historical anomaly. Like we had never seen that before. And I feel like horror noir in particular made a case for like the nineties being like the true Renaissance and like this time that, as you look back on it, it needs to be appreciated more as like a really distinct era. Yeah. And I think all three of these films I enjoyed to varying degrees, but that that's exactly why I wanted to do this episode. Cause as much as I like get out, you know, these films have been around for years. We're not in some like new thing. I guess it's like become more mainstream, but there's been like great black horror films for a while now They've just kind of been under the radar. Yeah. So I'm glad that we're kind of talking about them and people that haven't seen some of these, like definitely check them out. And uh, like Brittany was saying earlier, Horror Noir has a great list of films. Like there's a bunch of movies I hadn't seen in there. And flipping through the book from the library, I'm looking at it right now, like even more titles. Like obviously in 80 minutes, they couldn't go through all of it. There's just like tons and tons of movies that I had never heard of before. So there's plenty more to dig into. Yeah, I have to like get that, get a hold of that book. Um, because yeah, like when I was watching the documentary, I was just kind of keeping an ongoing list <laughs> and I was like, yep, saw this or like, nope, didn't see that. Need to see that. Need to see this more than that one. <laughs> like I was just kind of, you know, jotting them all down. So it was, a, it was a, a pretty like educational experience to watching that documentary. I think I definitely most want to see Abby, which is the black exploitation riff on the exorcist where a woman turns into a sex demon tries to take a bunch of black men's virginity. Uh, that sounds really fun to me personally. Oh, and I will say I did watch uh, Tales from the Hood 2. It's on Netflix. Wait, what? Yes. Yeah, they did. A, and they actually came out with a third one like yesterday. So there's actually three Tales from the Hood movies. Oh. And the, sec- the second one is not not very good. But I will say the first story has one of the most bizarre images i've ever seen in a horror film so at least check that out but overall not very good okay i'll still watch it um but yeah i think uh i'm so glad that we did this because now i watch tales from the hood and i loved it and i really hope that um what happened to the duke guy in that movie happens to david duke right? in real life. <laughs> any day now any day <laughs> it's gonna happen <laughs> It's kind of funny how, like, looking at that character, you want to, like, project Donald Trump onto him. But then thinking back, it's like, well, David Duke almost, like, won an election. And he almost, like, like, twice. Was only in Louisiana, so yeah. I 
I went to, this was years ago, but like not, not that long ago, like maybe five or six years ago, a friend invited me to go to the, what is it? Oktoberfest thing that the Deutsch house puts on. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll go to it. And it felt weird. Like it was just all these like white people from Jefferson parish that were very conservative. And then David Duke was there campaigning. And I was like, they let him in. (laughs) That was so blown away. And people were talking to him, taking his pamphlets. And I like just immediately left and I'm like, I'm not ever going to give that Deutsch house a fucking red cent (laughs) ever again. It was so gross. So yeah, he's still a monster, still trying to do weird shit. (laughs) He's still out there. He needs some fucking dolls to go and like chew his body up. (laughs) I don't think there's ever been like a more New Orleans election than David Duke versus Edwin Edwards after his (laughs) like uh, uh, corruption that that election really just defines politics down here unfortunately yeah it's all true it's pretty gross well next week on the podcast we're going to talk about another horror anthology clive barker his book books of blood which is a short story uh series he did that i think the original Candyman was adapted from oh wow there's a new hulu adaptation that boomer wanted to watch for the podcast so we'll be digging into more clive barker and Candyman lore next week nice and uh, uh, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're on Instagram now. I'll link that in the show notes for the show. Basically, I'm just posting illustrations I've done for reviews in the past. I don't know what else to do with it. It's just I love like it. something to do. <laughs> it's like its own thing now where it's like it's just like the art, the artistry that you've created for Swamp Flicks. You know, I love it. Big quotation marks around artistry. <laughs> it's cool though so it's almost i kind of like that there is an instagram that will hold all this it's gonna almost be like this little archive with all the images you know i've also tried recently to do zine style reviews which those are super cool well thank you yeah i enjoy those it's a lot it's it's just fun like i don't know it, it reads like, like as i'm reading it i get more expressive in my mind <laughs> I feel like there are a million blogs out there that talk about movies. I don't know how many of them are like scanned Sharpie doodles. <laughs> so uh, maybe that's the one thing that makes us special. So I'm trying to do more of those in, in recent months. So check those out too. And um, we'll come back with one more big horror episode between all three of us before the month's over. I promise that much. Mm. Um, I think that has still yet to be uh pin down what movies we're talking about but we are going to do a heavy metal theme to welcome satan into the all hollows eve this year (laughs) hell yeah yes open your doors to him and open your heart as well as madonna would want (laughs) (laughs) you hold the lock satan is the key exactly (laughs) bye everybody bye To the mind of a maniac Doomed to be a killer since I came out the nutsack I'm in a murderous mind state With a heart full of terror I see the devil in the mirror Buck, buck, lights out Cause when I grab my sword off Niggas get hard on <laughs> Barrel one, set your motherfucking flesh Barrel two, set your fucking heart on your chest You see I'm quick to let the hammer go flip